there's so much good we can do. And like, ultimately for me, it's like, how many people can we help? How many lives can we change? How many kids could we give a brighter future for and help them be the happiest, healthiest person they could be? How do we address some of the most common physiological and environmental issues that can be preventing our children from being able to truly thrive? When I'm working with families, the first place I always start is by zooming out and looking at the full picture and really thinking holistically about why a child might exhibit certain behaviors. But how do other disciplines, like the field of medicine, approach searching for that root cause and how can we learn from this practice to inform our parenting? I am thrilled to have Dr. Pejman Kadarai on the podcast today. Dr. K is one of the most highly trained integrative pediatricians in the country, and he's focused on helping children with learning and behavioral challenges. Dr. K is the founder of Holistic Minds, and we are going to learn all about the incredible work that he's doing today. I My conversation with Dr. K absolutely had my mind spinning in a good way, and I cannot wait for you to hear it. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights, so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hey, everybody. So today we have we have a guest that's a little different from some of the guests we've had on in the past. This is going to be a really interesting conversation. I'm really, really excited to dive in. Our guest today is Dr. K. He, you have so many interesting and very, very, very useful ways of working with families. And so can you, first of all, just hi, welcome. Hello. Hello. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you do as a pediatrician and why the work you do as a pediatrician is different than perhaps what most people think of as in pediatrics generally? Yeah. You know, uh, so everything that happens in a child or, or in the human body happens for a reason. There, there's always a reason for everything. And in medicine, there are so many times that we just say, well, that's normal, except it's not, right? But we call it normal because we don't know what else to call it, right? The kid who can't have their hair washed because they're so sensitive, the kid who has tantrums that last 30 minutes, right? When, when you dissect things down, there, there's all kinds of things that happen that are, we can say, not optimal, right? You can see like there's, there's something, and the parents in their heart always know like, hey, this is weird. Right. There, there's mm -hmm. that kind of like that feeling in the parent's heart that says, you know what, there's something about my child that's just not right. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not impending disaster, ICU kind of thing. And that's the difference in medicine. Doctors are taught to like if the child is about to die and end up in the ICU, call that abnormal. And anything outside of that is normal. Right. And mm -hmm. my practice is everything outside of impending disaster and really dissecting down like why do these odd things happen that cause kids to experience the world the way they do? That's not optimal, right? That's not what you see as the child that's full of vitality and full of joy and is just, you know, they're, they're just thriving in every regard. 
Uh-huh. All parents know in their heart, like, you know what? Like, my kid is healthy, thank God. My kid is doing well. Like, it's not a disaster. But God, like, there is that one thing or few things about him or her that just that just doesn't feel right to me. Mm-hmm. And that that's really where my practice kind of gets into the heart of, like, dissecting down these little things and explaining why these little things happen. And then more importantly, taking actions to address those things so the kid could be optimally healthy, God willing, forever. Got it. So like, so because you are in the field of holistic and integrative medicine, functional medicine, right? How, if parents aren't familiar with that field of pediatric medicine, how would you define it as different from like the wellness visits that they have with their primary care provider who's a pediatrician? That's a pretty awesome question. So uh, the analogy I've given to parents is, it's like you, you hire a contractor, right? And, and one contractor shows up with like three tools, right? They've got the screw, they've got the drill and saw. And then there's another contractor that shows up with like 100 tools. And chances are the contractor that has the 100 tools will have an easier job addressing whatever issues there. I look at my practice of pediatrics as the more tools you have, and the more ways you're able to see a problem, chances are the better off you are in address understanding and addressing the issue. And it's weird to me that in pediatrics, we just cling on to this model of allopathic medicine, right? Pharmaceuticals are king, pharmaceuticals address everything, and the medical model is perfect. And when you just stand back, you, you kind of just very logically, like you say, well, God, that's kind of strange. So you're saying that all of these other models of medicine, some of which have been around for thousands of years, right? Traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, uh, osteopathy has been around much longer than allopathic medicine. Like some of these medical models, like, so you're saying all of these are useless because this conventional medical model is all that there is. And when you just look at it from that simple perspective, you say, well, that's that's strange, right? Mm-hmm. And my practice has been essentially to embrace everything because what I have learned over time is there is no perfect system. Like every system has its weaknesses, every system, even functional medicine, like there are flaws in functional medicine, there are flaws in osteopathic medicine. Every system has a flaw. Now, when you start piecing all of the medical models together, right? So it's like coming in with 15 different lenses and you look, you look at one lens, you're like, eh, that's, that doesn't make the picture clear. Put it on another lens. Eh, that's still not clear. Third lens. Oh, now mm. I can see it. That, that's, that's kind of my approach. And what I've done over the years is just accumulate more lenses so I can look at problems from different lenses to say, well, that's not. No, that that doesn't click. Oh, but look at this one. Oh, yeah. Now the picture makes sense. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. really interesting because I, I don't know how much we've ever been able to talk about the psychology piece of things, but mm. there's a real parallel to that in in the practice of psycho, psychotherapy and psychology and mental health because like, I have a very integrative – and I've never put together the, the correlation between integrative medicine and like our integrative approach to psychology that we do in our practice, but it's very similar in that like we are not, no one in my practice is like strictly in one camp, right? We, and there are camps in the field of psychology and they are sometimes very, very entrenched and siloed from one another. And I think when you look at psychology from an integrative perspective in a very similar way, like 
you get to, I love that metaphor. It's like, makes me think of going to like the eye doctor and they're like doing your vision test and like, does this one look right? How about this lens? How about this one? And you like, each one gets a little clear. It's like when you have all the lenses where you're pulling on like cognitive behavioral strategies and relational strategies, and you're looking at like the attachment lens and all these other pieces, including probably where our fields overlap, like functional health and wellness because the things you're describing, the kid who's got sensitivities when they're in the bathtub or that's having tantrums, like those are things parents come to me for too. And so it's like really being able to take this holistic view, like whole view of a child that's, I, that resonates with me so deeply. I, I love that. And, you know, as you're sharing this, what really has come up for me is like if, if I could dream of the perfect world that perfect world would be a blend or marriage of psychology and everything related to mental health married to the physiology. Mm -hmm. And right now, speaking of silos, I mean, as you were sharing everything, you know, I'm just thinking of like all of the silos in my world where like this camp doesn't talk to that camp and that camp mm -hmm. doesn't believe in this camp. And like everyone's egos are kind of like entrenching them in their own little world. And not that I don't have an ego. I've, 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 I wish my ego was smaller, but the, <laughs> for whatever weird reason, my brain just doesn't attach itself to these silos. And I just jump into one silo and kind of consume everything and then jump into another silo and do that. But right now, what I find is the world of psychology is still totally disconnected from the world of physiology. And even though there, there's a plethora of clinical studies that have shown, like, I mean, everyone knows the microbiome affects the brain, right? And microbiome mm -hmm. affects mental health. But how has that come into the clinical practice of what we do with mental health, right? Mm -hmm. And like, if, if I could have my dream come true, it would be that psychologists and if you want to say physiologists or holistic pediatricians or whatever you want to call us, you know, got together and started looking at like, okay, well, these are the things that are purely psychosocial, right? Something awful mm -hmm. happened and that resulted or, or a parent didn't know how to communicate with a child, right? And that has resulted in whatever behavior or, oh, geez, there's actually a physical physiological element to why this child is doing whatever it is that they're doing. Mm -hmm. And now this is the piece of their physical body we need to take care of to improve their mental health behavioral piece. Yes. I mean, I want to be a part of that world too, because that is like so, so fun. And if people have listened to this podcast for a while, they might be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we know, like we, we have to understand the nervous system. We have to, and I'm, I probably skew more towards the, the physi, the physiology of it in my practice with helping parents understand like the brain body nervous system piece, but I don't know anything about the medical health piece. Like the, I don't know about the bio, the gut biome. I mean, I know of it and I know that it is a thing that matters, but like, I couldn't tell you why or how, because that's just not part of my training at all. And so like, I know about the brain and I know about the nervous system and I know about the biochemistry of that, which is still like moving into that space, right? That physiology piece, like adrenaline, cortisol, all these hormonal shifts that happen when there's, when the brain is in that threat state. 
can shift the biochemistry. I'm so like, please, I want to hear your thoughts on that piece. Like, and what, what, what else could we, what else, what else can we layer onto that? Because there are a lot of clinicians that listen to this podcast too. It's not just parents. And like, I definitely would be curious what your take is, is like, how do we marry those worlds better? What do we need to, what do we all need to kind of be studying together? Well, uh, uh I, I, I loved everything you said and just, I think, this opening for this conversation. And I mean, the reality is this isn't just psychologists like having just this kind of awareness, but not knowing how to put it into action. I mean, most clinicians like, I mean, speaking for my own world of holistic pediatrics, honestly speaking, most forget about the conventional pediatricians because I believe the conventional pediatricians and even the holistic pediatricians want to help, right? And this isn't about people being ignorant or resistant. It's people want to help, but that access to information has been kind of locked up, right? And that's one of the fundamental things that I see. Like a lot of people know like there's there's something off, but how do you go about addressing that something off if you don't even know what information to look for? And uh, there, I was. Have, have you heard of Brian Johnson, the blueprint guy? He, mm-hmm. He's this guy. He's the most studied human being. He basically, spent a whole bunch of money like studying himself. Long story short, there, uh, I was listening to a podcast that he had with my friend Drew, and there was one thing that he said that really stuck out to me, which is ultimately understanding health is should be looked at as more of an engineering problem rather than anything else. And when he said that, I'm like, that's friggin' brilliant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, right now in medicine, we just, we've, we've got this kind of conformist, like locked in mechanism where unless something has been, you know, definitively proven, you just don't go there. And mm-hmm. we don't look at health or physiological mental health or functional mental health, whatever the hell you want to call this thing, as how do we engineer solutions through whatever challenge that's there? And, you know, if if I was to kind of label myself as, as I heard this and I've kept thinking about this, like I actually approach the challenges that the kids have in my practice for more of an engineering challenge of like, where is the problem? What what system is locked up? Like where where is the physiology locked up? And then based on that, what tool or method can you use to unlock that system to then get that system to run well or systems to run well to then yeah. restore the health, which then restores the mental health? And, you know, in approaching problems in this way, like one, it's been a hell of a lot more fun for me. And two, yeah. the outcomes that we've had are just, I mean, at times borderline weird where uh, I, I'll give you an example. There was this beautiful little kid you know, regressive autism as, as the child was labeled, like lost language in 19, 20 months, had very few words, kind of disconnected. Turns out that, you know, there was some toxic exposure that had derailed this child's immune system. We found the toxic exposure, got rid of it. It was mold. Uh, family moved out of the home. I gave them a few things to stabilize the child's immune system and really at multiple levels, just get that child's nervous system to function better. And I think it was like six to eight weeks later, child starts saying words, starts making eye contact, starts going up to the parents and like giving them hugs and like socially became actually engaged and connected to the parents. And like the mom and I were both crying on the call because like it was the coolest thing you could possibly Mm. see. And it's just, how do we, really engineer our way through these challenges 
and and start understanding like why are these poor kids stuck whether it's as extreme as something as autism or the more subtle things where it's like eh, things are off but i don't know what the heck that thing is right and i like it's i imagine like one that's kind of incredible that, but i'm that you could like pinpoint that that problem by looking at like okay well we have to look at it from angles that are different from where we are originally going to go regressional autism, right? That's the initial quote problem, but that wasn't really the problem, right? So if we just take it at face value and try to treat that first layer, we might miss something. How do you, what are your tools for kind of saying, okay, well, here's the first thing we see, but what could be underneath that? And then what could be underneath that? Because I imagine like this, in this kid's case, you peel back the layers, you got to the the core issue, which in this case sounds like it was mold or some other, you know, environmental toxin. Is that how you always do it? Do you always come to the same place? Do you always end up at the same place? Is, is it totally different for every situation? And like, how, what's the, what's the mechanism by which you peel back the layers? How do you know when you hit it? <laughs> uh, really good question. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure like with you, when you approach your patients, you start kind of doing an inquiry, right? You start poking into different areas and you start trying to understand what is the lay of the land, right? Mm -hmm. Essentially, that's what I do. I, I create this blueprint of the child and I literally essentially start scanning every single system within their body. So what is their sensory experience of the world? How, like, it, it's not just how does this child do socially? It's Okay, if they go into a crowded environment, how do they do? When they go to the beach, how do they do? If you wash their hair, how do they do? What is their experience of clothing? How does the experience of food in their mouth? Because that actually tells you a lot about that child's sensory makeup. You know, mm -hmm. the kid that they will eat a handful of crunchy foods and nothing else. And as soon as you put something either extremely chewy or dense or slimy, that kid is like, no, thank you. That's a sensory experience. And we don't mm -hmm. look at things in this way, right? We just say, well, some kids are picky eaters and, and some kids just don't like their hair wash. Some kids just don't like to go to the beach, you know? And it's just, when you when you look at this, we, we just normalize all of these things as, well, this is just some, how some kids are. And we just do that for everything. Right. So what I do is dissect these things down. And sometimes the parents think I'm like nuts because you're like, why are you asking this? And it's not even just how the kids are doing. It's like, okay, mom, how are you doing? How's your memory? How is your energy? How is this? How is that? And in doing this, I'm creating this really detailed blueprint of how is the child sleep when they wake up? How Are they happy? Are they grumpy? Do they get dark circles? In the older kids, like that, that can actually articulate. Do they dream? Do they dream in color? And all of these things actually tell us details of how that child's physiology is working. So, by mm -hmm. asking these questions, we're we're essentially creating this map of the the child's inner workings. Right? It's kind of like you you plug in the computer in the car, and it gives you the detail like print out of like, okay, here are all the systems, here are how they're doing. That's essentially what I'm doing, mm -hmm. and then. Once you create that picture, then you say, okay, these are the systems that are off, right? This, this system is off, the mitochondria is off, the gut is off, blah, 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 blah. Now, what is underneath that? And that starts then getting into, you know, where has this child lived? Like I've had families where, 
You know, they're like, yeah, you know, every summer we go to Long Island or wherever and we spend X months in and the kids are running in the woods. I'm, I don't know if Long Island has wood, but like they're on the <laughs> East Coast and they're, they're, yeah, two months every year they're, they're running in whatever forest with their friends. And I'm like, well, there's a lot of ticks over there, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah, we have to pick off ticks every. Well, Jesus, that that could be lime. You know, I've had families where. So tell me, tell me about where you live. Yeah, you know, we're we're in wherever agricultural belt, and there, there's a commercial farm like across the street from us. So what happens? Yeah, every day there's a tractor spraying glyphosates on these. Pet, uh, on these crops. So w- what happens? Yeah, the, the glyphosates just come right into our window. You could smell it. Like it, it's it's not like, hey, do you eat organic or not? It's wafts mm-hmm. of pesticides are getting sprayed into the pregnant mom's face and the baby's face as they're living. And like I had one family that are like, yeah, in our community, kids play with glyphosates because they think it's fun. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, they, 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 literally they're spraying glyphosates around each other because it's it's a fun thing to do, right? Wow. So it, it's building these pictures and understanding like who is the child, where do they live, what is their environment, what have they been exposed to? And then you take this understanding and put, put it together with these factors to say, okay, well, this, 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 and this can cause this. And now here are the steps we can take to address these issues. And that's what makes this, I think, fun because there's so much good we can do. And mm-hmm. like ultimately for me, it, it's, it's not, not about so much geeking out over these details. It's like how many people can we help? How many lives can we change? How many kids can we give a brighter future for and help them be the happiest, healthiest person they could be? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. sign me up for that. <laughs> 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 That's amazing. So, so what do you know? Like you've been doing this for a long time. Like what patterns are you noticing? What do parents, what can parents be, start to be mindful of when they're thinking about, you know, how to make sense of things that they might not have realized to pay attention to? I, I think, great question. Uh, I would start with one, how is the child's vitality? Like, are they just not hyperactive because there's a difference between a child who has lots of vitality, right? Healthy, strong energy could play soccer for two hours in and still shine. And as a extension of that vitality, the children who have vitality just have this joy that just permeates out of them because they just feel good, right? There are kids that just feel good in like, I'll, I'll give you an example. My daughter she, she unfortunately got my makeup, which is this kind of physiological, fragile mess where if, if, we're, if we're taking care of, we're good. If we're not taking care of, we're just a big old hot mess. And I'll, I'll give you an example. When she was probably three, three and a half, she would have 30 minute meltdowns, like tantrums that just would go on and on and on, sometimes longer. Intense sensory issues like to the point where one time I, I started borderline crying because we were at a family party and she was under a table, like hunched over, terrified because we, there was 40 of us Persians all talking at the same time at my aunt's house. And like she just was completely overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Now, started supplementing it. We also did OT. We did some other things. But one of the things that I've seen is when she is supplemented, Lana, how are you feeling? I feel great. 
I feel great. And like, she's all smiles and she's just this bubbly, happy person. I get lazy and I don't supplement her for two or three weeks. And all of a sudden, Lana is this kid who now starts crying for very little reasons, becomes irritable. We still have some more work to do because it turns out we had mold in our house and I you know, you'd think I'd be the one that would notice it, but it took me a while to notice that. But how is the child's vitality? Are they beaming with energy? Are they beaming with joy? And if they're not, then the question is, well, what the heck is mucking up the works that is preventing this child from doing that? And, you know, these, these excuses of like, oh, well, some kids are just irritable. Like that's just the way they are. No, they're not. Like kids, their baseline, I believe, if they're feeling well, is to just permeate love and joy. Like that's just the nature of young children, which is what makes them so beautiful, right? So when a child can't do that, first thing we should do is step back and say, what's going on? And, you know, God bless you for the work you do because you're looking at it from like, okay, what's what's happened inside the home? Is there some kind of discord with the parents, et cetera? But physiologically, we can do the same. Mm-hmm. The, the next thing that I think is most useful is – what is the child's experience of the world from a sensory standpoint? Because when things go wrong, one of the most telltale signs that there is something off is the child's sensory experience of the world starts becoming distorted. They become more sensitive to sound. So sound becomes overwhelming. They become more sensitive to touch. So clothing, hair washing, even being touched at times kind of you know startles them. Uh, the experience of taste, because ultimately our experience within the mouth is part of that tactile kind of sensory experience. Mm -hmm. So you'll see like there are some kids that just everything in the world is kind of bothering them. And there are probably some parents are like, yeah, that that's, (laughs) you know, me Mm -hmm. too. And through this, we can start getting an understanding of like, are all systems a go? Everything is peachy or "Eh, no, actually some little things are off. Yeah. That's interesting because I do a very similar assessment when I'm working with families about sensory stuff because I do think the sensory system is a huge window into kind of how well is this kid doing. It Interestingly, like obviously we have different angles that we're working on from, right? So when I'm looking at the sensory system, I'm thinking of it in terms of like, yeah, when a child is agitated all the time, when they're irritable all the time, it's a good indication that their sensory system is having a too big of a load to handle. My then sort of what do we do then kind of thing is sensory regulation. But it sounds like what you're actually doing isn't regulate the sensory system. It's figuring out why is the sensory system being overloaded. And I'm curious about that. Can you tell me more about like that piece? Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm happy you're asking. So it was probably six years ago that I, I got introduced to the world of you know sensory integration and occupational therapy and all of that. And I'm a big fan of it. I mean, both of my kids have had it. I think it's awesome. The one thing that never really became clear to me, and I, I, I'm one of those that just likes to ask an annoying number of questions, you know, as I was work, like as I was working with all the OTs and got into the literature and started reading their papers, you know, the, the thing that was weird to me is like, well, where the hell does this come from? And you know, everyone says, well, like, you know, it's just a lack of coordination and integration, and some kids just don't crawl. Until you look, you're like, well, that kid crawled. 
you know, and that kid, I mean, my son is a perfect example because this poor little dude was also exposed to mold and he crawled, he crawled perfectly. He's really well coordinated. Like there are none of the things that the OT world describes. And that's when I started really getting into these other domains. And it was actually my patients that, that started helping me see this because I would do the, like, I would do supplementation and then the parents would come back and they're like, Hey, his sensory like issues are gone. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're like, well, yeah, th- th- this, 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 and this has happened. And then I, I kind of back backed up into the literature to, to find like what the heck had actually happened. So it turns out there are two primary things that influence sensory experiences. There are the mitochondria. And it turns out that in the prefrontal cortex of our brain, we've got these GABAergic neurons. So they're like the traffic control cops, I call them, of our sensory experience. And literally, mm-hmm. these GABAergic neurons will actually slow down the, the flow of sensory information for the sake of sensory processing and sensory uh, gating, as they call it. And when you have energy production issues, so the kids that are dragging, they're tired all the time. They're, they're just, you could see them. They're just pooped. Well, that pooped experience that you see in the kid is also showing up within the neurons, specifically these GABAergic neurons, because it turns out they're the most energy hungry cells within the brain or one of. And at times when these traffic control cops fall asleep, Essentially, the sensory regulation of the brain starts changing. And I've mm-hmm. and that was through me supplementing the kids because I saw that they were physically weak. And then all of a sudden the parents are like, holy crap, like my, my kid is like not getting so overwhelmed. I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. Uh, there's another piece which is actually more important. So it turns out that histamine, which you know, we, we associate with runny nose and coughing and rashes actually happens to be one of the most powerful regulators of the vestibular system, right? So our middle ear uh, balance coordination and the vestibular system and the sensory pathways are integrally tied together. And when histamine gets distorted, the vestibular system gets distorted. And when the vestibular system gets distorted, that starts changing certain sensory experiences. And it turns out that at deeper levels, histamine can also influence the direct sensory pathways, sight, sound, hearing, olfactory, et cetera, through other means. And uh, I'll give you an example. We, we have this one beautiful guy was doing awesome on the spectrum. We did a few things. We controlled the exposure. Runny nose, coughing went away, started becoming more calm, started being more just comfortable and happy. Family went to a home. Uh, it was a cabin in Lake Arrowhead. Lots of dust, turns out probably lots of mold. Within two days, runny nose congestion came back and all of his sensory issues and anxiety just shot through the roof literally at the same time. Hmm. And th- these are areas, both of these, that, that are not very well mapped out or understood in, at least that I know of, even in the functional kind of holistic pediatric world. And one of the things that I've learned is by modulating histamine and my modulating the mitochondria and changing part of the immune response, I'm able to calm down the nervous systems of these kids. And we've had some kids where they were in like two years of sensory occupational you know, therapy, nothing worked, 
boom, address these things. And then like a month later, the parents are like, holy crap, like my, my kids, like sensory issues are gone. And, and yeah. early on, I'm like, wait, are you sure? Like, are you sure? Like, are you, are, are you sure? Like, you're not imagining this because I had a hard time believing this, but it turns out that all of these things are tied together. And I'll be happy to share with you if you want, like there's this beautiful paper written in 2008 by this guy named Haas, H-A-A-S, that he talks about histamine in the central nervous system. And it's like 85 pages of like geeky like discussions of histamine, but he he literally maps out like it does this, it does this, it does this, it does this, and that information has just not yet made it into our practice. That's so interesting. Is is histamine an inflammatory thing? Like, is that part of it, or is it not related to inflammation? It's totally related to inflammation. It's a byproduct of inflammation. So when you get toxicity or some kind of inflammatory response, are are kind of First line defenders are the mast cells. And the, these are the scouts, right? That are scouting the world and making sure nothing comes to kill us. And when something bothers these mast cells, these mast cells start dumping massive amounts of histamine, which then ultimately makes it into the central nervous system and starts hitting all of these receptors and starts changing part of the sensory cognitive experience. Mm. That's really interesting because what the the place that I have the most rel like the most of, um, like I always think about like when you're taking a new information, right. Brand new information. Sometimes we don't have a, a bookcase to put it on. Right. And mm -hmm. so having references, having some sort of internal cognitive scaffolding for like the new information, like I need a bookcase to put this information on. But the one that I keep going back to is pans and pandas, because that in my field is really relevant to the work we do. And for people who aren't familiar with that, it's when a kid gets strep throat and then all of a sudden we see this like onset of OCD like symptoms. And does this fit into this at all? Like, what do you, is this related to the same idea? Thousand percent, thousand percent. So uh, first thing is kind of talking about the bookcase. Just think of histamine from this very, very simple perspective. When you take Benadryl, most people, when, when they take Benadryl, what happens? You, right? You just you just yeah. knock out. Right? It's, it's like the air out of the balloon is gone. Down. Right. And that is one way to start contextualizing what histamine does to the nervous system. Because as much as we focus on the allergy issues, it turns out the two primary sympathetic regulators of the nervous system are glutamate right? GABA calms it down, glutamate boosts it up. And then there's histamine. These are the two primary regulators of our sympathetic nervous system. And when you look at these poor kids, either on the spectrum or with pans and pandas, what do you see? They're just hyper, hyper vigilant, right? They're just, they're, they're I, I hate to use this term, but it's almost like they're tweaking out. They're, they're on 15 cups of coffee every day. They, their sleep is disrupted. Like their entire sensory uh, sympathetic experience is completely distorted. And specifically with the pans and pandas kids, uh, that's actually a big part of my practice. And what's really weird is we blame strep as the primary causative factor. And it's not to say in some kids it's not. But then what you also see in the literature is you, you can also have cases where there is no strep found, but it is still strep even though you can't find it. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of kids who get strep infections, but never go on to develop pans and pandas. So one of my 
two of my mentors, you know, what they had me ask is, what is it about these kids that causes their immune system to get to a place where it starts reacting to this strep? And what are the things that cause the irritability, the aggression, like the, the weird urinary issues? Like there's a lot of weird things about these kids that we just say, well, it's part of pans and pandas and strep is the cause. And when you start getting into the worlds of lime and mold and what I've come to believe, and this is what my mentors taught me, is probably the two big, ugly you know, monsters behind the scenes driving the outward reactions are actually lime and mold. And at least, mm-hmm. I'd say 60 to 70% of the pants and pandas kids that I see actually have mold as the primary driving factor with whatever infections kind of superficially uh, ultimately becoming the trigger. Mm. So what do we do? How, cause mold is, I'm assuming mold is pretty much you, you know, it's, it's in a lot of places. <laughs> so yes and no. Okay. The, the common, you know, misconception is well, mold is everywhere. So benign amounts of mold and non-toxic molds are everywhere. They're in the environment, they're, they're outside, they're, they're inside. Toxic molds that produce certain mycotoxins that are actually highly, highly toxic to our body, those are not normal and those should not be found in an indoor environment. And this is where there's this big misconception. And I talk to a lot of people and everyone says like, well, mold is everywhere. What are you talking about, dude? And that is part of the misunderstanding. Because of certain changes in our building sciences, so like for instance, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, we didn't use drywall, right? It was all kind of plaster and concrete and and also buildings were way more open, right? We didn't get fancy insulation and energy efficiency until like what, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. right? And I, I think back to like when when you know, we had our first house, like that, that house leaked air left and right, right? Like the windows, like if you close them, there was still like, what, like at least a half inch like gap, right? And, mm-hmm. and buildings were just leaky, which also meant that they constantly breathed, which constantly exchanged air. And as we've done these things, and it's not to say, you know, energy efficiency is a bad thing, but as we've done these things, and now with climate change, what what do people do? Windows are always closed, doors are always closed, AC is running all the time. So we've created these little capsules, which Mm -hmm. do not breathe, right? There's no fresh air coming in. And if there's any water damage now in this capsule, what does that do? It traps all of these toxins within the capsule which constantly recirculates it of in the human beings that are exposed. And, you know, when you think of molds, like what do molds do in the world? What is the they, job of a mold? My guess is to like spread spores and keep growing. But like ultimately, what, what do molds do in, in the environment? They decompose, right? Like the job of a mold is to decompose. They break things down. That's what makes Mm. fungi and molds fantastic because that's how we get this recirculation of everything, right? Mm. It's really, really bad when you as the living human being is the thing that's getting decomposed, right? Yeah. And and (laughs) when you start getting into the weird nuances of the science of these mycotoxins and, you know, I, I started geeking out and spent probably more time than I should have like looking at this. 
like mycotoxins disrupt the mitochondria. So they shut down our energy production, which makes sense. They want to decompose you, right? So you shouldn't have a lot of energy because the less energy you have, the better you are to decompose. They start suppressing your immune response. And I'm talking about like borderline. Uh, so imagine there's heart transplant immune suppression or cancer, heavens forbid, immune suppression, mm-hmm. right? Chemotherapy where there, there's this term they use, absolute, absolute neutrophil count, ANC. So heart transplant chemotherapy, ANC is between 300 and it, once they're out of the woods, they're kind of above 800 to 1,000. Some of the kids that I see that have had heavy multoxin exposure, their ANC is 1,500. 1200. So yes, they're not heart transplant chemotherapy immune suppressed, but I think you can make an argument that just barely being outside of that range is not necessarily a good place. Where where are people who are not exposed to mold? What are their numbers? Like what's the kind of baseline? 3000, 5000. So it's, it's at least two to three times that. And what you see in a lot of these kids, like a lot of parents are like, yeah, why does my kid get sick all the time? He's, he's had 15 ear infections. He's had one cold after another, after another, after another. And my kid is just sick all the time. My kid is, he, he never recovers from a cold. Well, yeah, if you're immune suppressed, would you expect anything different? Mm-hmm. Right. And the conventional approach is, well, let's stick tubes in the kid's ears to let the ears drain because the kid has had 15 ear infections. Mm-hmm. Let's put them on antibiotics because they keep getting sick. You know, and we don't stand back and say, what is disrupting this this beautiful kid's immune system that is allowing these infections to take place? And then it also affects the gut. It affects the detox pathways and all of these other things. And that's where this entire world of mold medicine gets to be really fascinating to me mm-hmm. because like one, these are things we can prevent, right? If we got smart enough to say, okay, this is a bad idea. How do we prevent it? it it's completely treatable. And mm-hmm. by understanding what is happening and understanding the steps we can take to address it, and this is just specifically talking about mold, there's so much good we can do for, for our entire population. Yeah. So how, like, I, I didn't know that there are different types of mold and that, you know, yes, there's mold, whatever, but not all of it's toxic. How do people test for that? Um, an easy, easy way. So th- there's these dust tests you can do, and there's actually a company called the dust test, uh, and I have no affiliation with them, but I'm friends with them. They actually have a system where you buy the test, they send the kit to you, you test the house, and then you send it to them and they'll help you analyze it. Mm-hmm. Um, that same technology is available through other companies. So if people do a search for ERMI test, ERMI test, there's a, a whole bunch of other companies, EnviroBioMix, Mycometrics, that all do the same thing. And basically it's direct to consumer. And basically what you do with this is you gather the dust in your house and you send it off and they run a DNA probe on the dust and they check to see if there's funky amounts of the problematic molds in the dust, right? Because either your home is clean and there's a little bit of dust or a little bit of mold fragments, right? But these are not like dangerous molds. These are your, your, you know, you've got the beautiful plant and that plant is dumping out some mold or you've opened your window and there's some mold coming from your garden, but nothing exciting or holy cow, 
no, there, there's like the classic black mold, stachybotrys. Like stachybotrys does not come from the environment. Stachybotrys only happens when there's something happening and there's water contamination somewhere. So the, these tests, and they're, they're very simple. It's either yes, there's a problem or no, there isn't a problem. And through that, people can get an idea of what's going on. Okay. So I have two follow-up questions. Mm-hmm. If you do tests like this and you don't have molds, and there are still these issues, like, do we then get, say, okay, that's not it. There might, let's, let's keep looking and where else could we look for answers? But then also if there is mold, then what do we do? Two awesome questions. Uh, so first is if truly there isn't mold and, and there are some nuances to understanding that um, and really being certain of that, the fact that like you did this test and you did it correctly and there's clearly not, and there's a, kind of an art or science to doing that. And what's beautiful about this company called the Dust Test is they have a team of people that can help you actually assess what's going on. So presuming there's no mold, then the question is like, is this lime? Is this heavy metals? Do you have like a boatload of arsenic showing up in something, you know, from your water, from all the rice you're eating? Did you, did the kid eat? you know, tons of sushi, uh, like tuna, right? Uh, asking the questions of like, okay, what else can this be? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, sorry, what was the second question? The second is if there is mold and we're like, okay, what, do? what do we do? So that's where working with the right people uh, becomes important. Uh, there's a wonderful organization called ISEAI.org. And it's a group of environmental experts that can help you, they can consult with you remotely and they're all fantastic. And for, for what they do, they, they charge very little. So they charge like two to 300 bucks an hour to help you like map out what's going on within your home. And then there are providers that are relatively well-seasoned in the world of mold that can help you figure out like how to treat. Part of what I've done, because I've realized in the domain of pediatric mold, especially as it pertains to mental health, that's that's something that a lot of these providers don't know what the heck to do with. So I've actually started a, a training program where we have 20 amazing providers now working with me to start getting oriented uh, because I, I just see like there's so much good we can do. There, there's so much we can do to help. And I mean, if, if I could only share like the stories of the things that I've seen where kids with quote unquote severe ADHD, quote unquote learning disabilities that were failing out of school, like a year later, they're at the top of the curve and everyone is just like, what just happened? Did this kid get a brain transplant? Uh, you know, pans and pandas, six months later, kids with aggression, anxiety, OCD, suddenly being calm and, and cognitively normal and functioning well and being happy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, I mean, the reason why I'm, I'm here and I'm so grateful for us to be having this discussion and the mentorship and everything is if we can catch this early on, and especially in those first formative years of life, we can do whatever we need to restore the the vitality and integrity of that child's nervous system and help that child start contextualizing themselves in a different way. Because I'm sure you see this, you know, kids coming in and they're like, I'm just stupid. I'm just bad. I'm just dumb. You know, and they use these awful 
adjectives to describe themselves. And it's, it's heart-wrenching. It's heart-wrenching to see that. And when you're able to take away these things that are just dragging them down and allow them to feel well and allow them to feel happy and allow them to feel smart, and they, they, they now can function and thrive, like their entire trajectory in the future has changed. And I can't imagine anything more important than doing that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I agree. I, I, I see so much utility in this. I also like my, my kind of mind has to ask, like, mm-hmm. would you say that all cases of ADHD and ASD and OCD and all of these disorders that we treat, can they all be explained for by this? Or are there ways in which we could say there are some that are and some that are not. And Cause I don't, I mean, I guess I'm, what's, how do you like, is, if this were the case, wouldn't everyone who has autism spectrum disorder be treated and not have it if we assessed for this stuff? Uh, it's an amazing question you're asking. Uh, I think the honest answer is we don't know. Uh, I do believe there's always an explanation for why something happens. And at least in my experience in, you know, in the small circle of, of people that I surround myself in, in the domain of mold, there are many of us, you know, some of whom, like one of my mentors, Dr. Andrew Campbell, he's published God knows how many papers, well over 10 papers on this area. Like we are both fairly convinced that close to, if not more than 50% of autism is early, early mold exposure. We're talking in utero and in that first two to three years of life where all of that, you know, uh, synaptic pruning, the neurodevelopmental kind of immune priming is all happening. Uh, We don't know. Uh, Mm -hmm. My experience, I'd say 60 to 70% of what we call pans and pandas is probably mold toxicity. And the reason why we haven't gotten to the place where we can clearly make this association is with the technology and tools that we have right now, it takes a semi-act of God to identify mold. And this is more, the environmental piece is a little bit easier because these ERMI tests are mostly accurate unless you kind of mess up how you do the sampling. But the diagnosis within the child, so the urine tests that we have, the technologies that we have, oftentimes give false reads. And I, I've seen a bunch of families where they saw someone else, really good person, wonderful provider. Provider does one urine test, urine test comes back, doesn't look bad. And provider says, well, this is a mole. Family looks at it up, oh, everything is normal, they move on. Right. And This is like one of the things, part of why I started the mentorship is impressing upon the people that I'm working with, like case after case after case of how these tests fail. And right now, our clinical tools in actually assessing for mold toxicity in children uh, are kind of at the stage of like stone men. You know, it's like bam, bam. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, it's (laughs) it's, sounds. Yeah. 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 there, there are gains being made. Uh, Dr. Andrew Campbell has a wonderful antibody test that I think has a lot of utility, but we still have a lot to learn. And I think in the next 
five to 10 years, this, this entire domain is really going to grow. And through that, we will have a lot more data to really confidently say, yep, X amount of these kids all had these, these findings, lab findings, which then tied it to that. So that's very, really very interesting. I'm also my, the the other question that popped into my head is, is it mole? Like you were sort of one example you're saying is like, if the, you know, maybe the mom was exposed to this when she was pregnant or there was early exposure to mole, which sort of shifted or changed maybe the epigenetics or like, or the, the development. Right. And now we're here two, three, four, five years later, and we are seeing the effects of that. Could it, does the mold have to still be present? Like if you get out, if you get away from the mold, if you mitigate that piece, is there a regeneration or, cause my thought is like, what if you have a child who's exhibiting symptoms, right? But there isn't a, does that mean that there's a presence of mold currently or could it have been in the past and now we have to just deal with the fallout? I love uh, what you're asking. And the answer is yes. Uh, it could have happened in the past and the physiological toxicity that came from the past exposure has still lingered. Uh, early on, I, I was very naive in thinking like, oh, one, once you come out of you know a moldy environment, the body takes care of it and, and you're done. Especially in children and in some adults who are really badly affected, the body essentially loses the capacity to rebuild itself and to detoxify. What also seems to happen is at some point, especially with these little kids, it seems that they actually get colonized. So uh, there's a specific kind of mold called aspergillus, and it has been demonstrated that aspergillus can colonize the sinuses, it can colonize the lungs, it also can colonize the gut. Uh, the conventional look is, you know, when you talk to these specialists that are like, look at these things called the microbiome and you, you say, hey, microbiome specialist, can aspergillus colonize the gut? And they say, well, no, my, my, my paper says it can't, except what was their paper? They looked at healthy adults, right? 30, 40 something year olds, super healthy people that got exposed to mold for a very brief period of time. And yes, in that scenario, mold doesn't colonize you. What no one has looked at is what happens when you get this little baby who's had these toxin exposures in utero and think about like what these things can do to the, the gut. Where, where did antibiotics come from? Molds, right? Penicillin came from penicillium. It's a type of environmental mold. So if a baby was exposed to these antibiotic-like compounds in utero, and then they're born and they're nursing and mom has these toxins being released in her breast milk, which baby is getting, which further disrupts the gut of this child. And now they're living in this moldy environment and babies, once they start crawling, what do they do? They stick everything in their mouth and they're inhaling all that dust, which has the mold. What we think happens, we don't know for sure, is through all of that, these babies can actually start getting colonized and the mold actually starts setting up shop inside. So now they had the toxins that they can't clear and now they've actually got the same mold inside their gut, which is producing an ongoing level of toxicity and that's what keeps them stuck. Okay. And so how do you treat that? Great question. Uh, it, it's, you know, the, the treatment of it is, is actually the least complicated part. 
you, mm. you basically use some things, whether pharmaceuticals or herbals, to start clearing out the gut. You build up the gut. And then you use certain things like clay, charcoal, their pharmaceuticals to basically start pulling the mycotoxins out. Like the, the, the treatment part of it is actually the easiest part. It's identifying that this happened, yeah. being sure that this child was actually affected. And then most importantly, making sure that the environment that they're currently in is as clean as you think. It, mm -hmm. That is actually the hardest part because that is where things can fall through the cracks. And what I've seen in a lot of my colleagues, for instance, is they miss the exposure of the mold. And it's it's so ridiculous. Like uh, I had one family living in this beautiful home that is more expensive than my brain can comprehend. Uh, it was big enough to the point where it had eight air conditioning units. Like, I, I don't know how you have eight, eight air conditioning units, but they did. It turns out that the only air conditioning unit that was feeding the children's bedrooms happened to be the one that got contaminated and had mold inside the coils. So every time that air conditioning was running, and this is a family that liked to have their temperature a certain you know setting, so windows were generally closed and that AC was running more often than not. And mold toxins were just constantly getting pumped into just the room of those kids. And it, it was to the point where you're like, are you freaking kidding me? Uh, I had one family where their beautiful built-in refrigerator for whatever reason, got funky and moisture was trapping behind the air the refrigerator. And every time that refrigerator was running, mold was just getting pumped out. Rest of the house was fine, most for the most part. Oh. You know, so it's it's the, so it's, it's the, hard. It's the craziest things that you would never imagine. Like I had one other family. I, I did the testing. I started becoming suspicious. First mold inspector, there is no mold. Second mold inspector, there is no mold. And I started nagging them to death because the kid was really struggling. And the dad starts yelling at me. He's like, we do not have mold. I'm like, please, God, just check one more time. Third mold inspector comes. He saw literally just a, a little faint amount of water damage, just a few little stains around the, the window in the kid's bedroom. Everywhere else was fine. It turns out that for whatever reason, that window of all windows in the house was not flashed properly. So every time it rained, water was coming in around the window, going into the wall. And when they opened up the wall, mold everywhere, just behind where that little girl was sleeping. Mm. And, you know, it's it's these things where when you encounter, you're like, how in God's good earth is like, would this have happened? And it's almost like you have to be borderline paranoid to, to like yeah, yeah. detect these things because it's so easy to miss it. Right. And, yeah. And so, so at that I'm point, like, I'm like, like listening, I'm, I'm like listening to my <laughs> listeners, listening to this episode being like, oh no, like we're now going to be paranoid. Like, what do you say to parents to help them like feel, okay, like this is something you can handle. We can like, what can parents do to be educated consumers and like be able to like try to go and really do an appropriate assessment of this without becoming paranoid. I love that you bring that up. And I tell every single one of my families that please don't live in a place of fear. Please don't let this create more anxiety and don't let this become something that disrupts your life. If anything, this is now finally an answer to that why, right? So when we started off, you know, when parents say like, in my heart, there's something that's telling me something is not right, 
right? There's just this nagging feeling that something is just not right, except I don't know what the hell that not right thing is. And then if you step back and you look at the child and yep, my, my child has had a whole bunch of allergies, ear infections, they're tired all the time, they've got sensory issues. And oftentimes what also happens is when I start asking the parents like, hey, how's your memory? There's usually one of two parents where they're like, you know what? Yeah, I've just had this brain fog that just makes no sense. And they're like 35 years old. You know, it's not like they're 95. Yeah. And my energy is just off. I have to take a nap during the day or I have to drink like five cups of coffee just to make it. And I always thought it's just because I'm a busy parent. And they all say the same thing. Like, it's just because I've been a busy parent and I'm chasing after my kids. Right. So as you form this picture where you're like, yeah, you know, this picture kind of fits. That's when you say like, okay, maybe we now have an answer to why it is that our family has been struggling. And I always try to reframe this as one, you can totally do something about this. You can, this is all fixable. This is all treatable. This is all like 99.9% of it, it could be fixed. It's just a matter of getting to a place of understanding. And then once you get to that place of understanding saying, okay, what are my action steps? And that's where working with a, you know, a good provider that knows what they're doing could, could really make a difference. Yeah. So how do people find a good provider who knows what they're doing? I'm assuming Uh, like one, how do people find you and your practice? But like, I don't know if you can practice outside of state lines. Like we, I, as a psychologist can't like people are just, how do people get connected with someone who knows what to do in these situations? Uh, first thing, uh, there's that organization that I shared, I-S-E-A-I. So they, they have providers everywhere. They have providers literally around the world in the US uh, and for just general mold medicine, these, these people are awesome. Uh, I-S-E-A-I also has environmental experts and if you just go and like as you click get help, like there is like find an environmental expert, and these people can guide you on actually doing the testing of your home and figuring out like is there something there, and if there is, like what do you do about it? So I would say that's first and foremost the number one resource. Uh, uh, part of what I have done is you know the more I've had these conversations, the more apparent it's become to me how much of a need there is in the pediatric domain. And that's part of why I started this mentorship program, because it, it, it can no longer be about me and I don't want it to be about me. And I don't want it to be about my private practice because I can see one new person per day if I'm lucky. Mm-hmm. And that's not how we bring about change. So part of what I've done is we've launched this system called Holistic Minds with a W. Uh, and Holistic Minds is one a platform that actually starts capturing all the data and processes the data, starts gathering all the information that's necessary to allow providers to become more effective and efficient, which is one of the things that keeps us from serving and helping more people. And then on the other side, we've got these clinicians that are in the process of getting trained to actually come on board and serve these families. And Within the next month to two, we, we should have the providers actually ready to start helping people uh, because that that's how I see us really changing things, that 
you know, having hundreds, God willing, thousands of people that 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 are really good at doing this, and they can spot the information and do it efe- efficiently and effectively to really help as many people as possible. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, we'll definitely link all of that in the show description and the show notes so that people can find it. And if people want to just connect with you, follow the work you're doing. Is there anywhere else that you want to direct them to where they can like follow along? Sure. Uh, we, we have an Instagram account, uh, Holistic Kids. So W-H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C Kids. Uh, th- that's kind of the social media uh, piece of it. And that will be another okay. place. But you know, what's, what's really coming up for me in my heart is there's so much good we can do for so many people out there. And there's such a brighter, beautiful future we can create for so many kids and and adults. And there are so many things that right now we just say, well, that's what it is. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you a personal uh, experience, which which was weird to me. Um, so one thing we didn't talk about is, is how inflammation changes the fear response. Mm-hmm. And you know, over time with the work that I've done, I've, I've become very mindful. And when my anger response kind of comes up, I'm like, oh, there's my anger. Deep breath, calm it down. So as the in the process of treating these kids, I, I took something to calm down that specific part of inflammation that drives the fear response. And the weirdest thing was a, a week later, like my anger was kind of non-existent. It was, it was so strange where I would re, like, I would encounter scenarios and say, hmm, I don't think I'm going to react right now. That's not helpful. And why I'm bringing this up is there's so much we can do to help so many people live healthier, better, more productive, just beautiful lives. And I'm so grateful that you're facilitating this conversation and you're you're creating this space because that that's how I see change coming through more awareness mm-hmm. and information. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, I'm like lots of light bulbs are going off in my head right now. And I'm just like, I, you know, we'll have to talk offline a little bit too. Cause like, (laughs) cause I, this is, you know, this is a lot of the kids that I work with. I have a very specific number in my head right now being like, okay, I think we need to kind of explore this as at least a rule out. Like we need to make sure that we're looking at this piece too, you know, and this is kind of, come back full circle to the conversation we had about siloed clinical work. You know, if we, if we layer the work, if we layer the knowledge we have, if we layer it and integrate it together, like that is probably the answer to a lot of things because people don't always know who to go to. They go to the, the, the clinician, the provider, the specialist that makes the most sense for them in that moment. But if that provider can have a network of information, then they're getting all the minds. And that's really critical. So I'm super glad to have this conversation. And like, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Of course, of course. And, you know, by marrying these, these worlds, like, how, how much easier does your job become, right? If that child is now centered and, and reasonable and rational, like how much more effective can you be in the work that you're doing, right? And part of this holistic minds is, is really how do you help people, providers see their blind spots, right? How do you help them see what they don't know to see 
to then mm-hmm. empower them to make change in areas they don't even know to make change in. Yeah, a hundred percent. So this is, I think the beginning of a conversation, right? Like this is so, mm-hmm. there, I'm sure there's so much more, but um, this feels like a very nice starting point for, and I hope that parents who are hearing this and are like, oh, you know, this is something that's resonating to just look into this as a possibility, right? It's not to say that there aren't lots of ways of coming about it, but like at least check for mold. <laughs> like what's the harm in at least just yeah. checking that and um, will certainly be something that I'll add to my differential process mm. as well. So thank you. You're most welcome. Thank thank you for being so open to this and just, again, just creating the space for us to have this wonderful conversation. Happy. Very happy to. If this conversation with Dr. K has absolutely blown your mind as much as it blew mine, I want to hear about it. Let me know by leaving a review and giving a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews not only help me to know what topics you're interested in having me explore deeper, but also it helps me get some amazing experts on the show. And to thank you for your review, which helps me to spread this message far and wide and reach the ears of other parents just like you, I'm giving anyone that leaves an Apple podcast review a copy of my Banish Burnout weekly calendar absolutely free. All you have to do is DM me the word review at Dr. Sarah Brown on Instagram or send me an email with a screenshot of your review and I'll send my calendars right to your inbox. Thanks so much for listening. Don't be a stranger.